The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, let me begin by saying uh, thank you, Sean, for your uh, warm welcome. And uh, we do appreciate very much the opportunity to be here this evening and to have this chance to share with you. Uh, We have been uh, certainly encouraged and enriched by... uh, Sean and the leadership here uh, as, an, as the Ezra Institute by their constant words of encouragement and enthusiasm for what we're about. So we appreciate that and we're glad for the opportunity to talk with you tonight about the issue of the crisis facing our culture. And uh, in order to talk about that, I just want to begin reading a few verses from Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 14 through 20. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. You don't have to turn there, but if you have a Bible, you can. Speaking about Christ, beginning actually at verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. This is a paradigmatic statement that the Apostle Paul makes about the identity of Jesus Christ, that he is the creator and Lord of all. He's created all things. He sustains all things. He governs all things. He rules all things, and he has come to reclaim all things. And I often ask the question, of those all things, what does that leave out? Nothing because we're told whether things visible or invisible, whether in heaven or in earth, whatever it be, all things hold together in and through the person of Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, but the lordship of Jesus Christ, where everything culminates in every aspect of life in His preeminence. Now, we're living in a time in Canadian history and in Canadian life where we do not see Christ preeminent. We're living in a time in the West in general where we're seeing overall the decline of the influence of the gospel, the decline of the influence of Scripture in all the major spheres of public life. And there is an old saying that I think is particularly pertinent to our time, as goes the church, so goes the world. The church is salt and light, that's our calling, to enlighten the world in which Christ has placed us and to preserve it. And where the church loses its vision of who Jesus Christ really is and applies his lordship to life, the culture steadily moves into a period of decline. And one could certainly argue that that's been going on since the conclusion of the French Revolution. But more, bringing that more up to date right now, In the last 50 years in particular in this country, many of you here I can see will be old enough to remember the 1960s and the 1950s, some perhaps even the 1940s, and you will know that Canada, the West, was a very different place. And we have reached a point, and uh, Dr. Masson will be talking about some of these things later on, we have reached a point in which the markers of cultural decline are all around us. Now, when we talk about culture in crisis, uh, what do we mean, first of all, by culture? This is an overused word because people talk about 
business culture and arts cultures and subcultures and cultural ghettos and this culture and that culture. But basically, culture, the best, I think, definition, simplest, most straightforward definition of culture is that culture is the public manifestation of religion. Culture is the public expression of our religious convictions. What we believe about the world, about God and about ourselves, is expressed, comes to expression, in what we call culture. In particular, law and education. Now, it affects the arts, it affects entertainment, it affects every aspect of life. But if you go to where my parents, for example, served for about 15 years in Pakistan, which is an Islamic country, what you will notice in Pakistan is that its education in the madrasas is defined by Islam. And the law, Sharia law, defines the culture of the country. If you go to many parts of India, Hinduism, which still dominates the cultural landscape, defines the social order through the caste system. Now, when you used to come to America or to Canada or to the United, United Kingdom, you would say that Christianity is clearly the basic religion here because it's shot right through it. It informs every aspect of our education, and our law is Christian law. Those two areas of life today, in particular, are in complete turmoil and crisis. We are in an age of revolution against biblical law, and we're in an age of revolution, com almost completed revolution against Christian education. So culture is the simplest and easiest definition. Go to Saudi Arabia, you're not going to find Buddhist culture. You go to Saudi Arabia, you find Islamic culture. Because culture is the public manifestation of religion. Culture is related to the word cultivation, which is an important clue, because <clears throat> when my grandparents, for example, and I'm still in my 30s, for a few more months, uh, when my grandparents talked about somebody who was well-informed, uh, a, a useful, contributing member of English society, they would say they were a cultivated, cultured person. Some of you older people remember that. He or she is cultured. And what they meant is that they had a well-cultivated mind, that the seeds that had gone in had been cultivated in their lives by parents, by their education, by their experiences, and they'd grown up to become useful, productive, helpful, constructive members of society. And if they were... Uh, interested in high culture, in the arts, and so on, well, so much the better. But cultivation, culture and cultivation are related ideas, because how we cultivate people's lives from childhood onwards defines their state of being. And their state of being creates a type of civilization. So as in terms of any social order, any society, how that society is cultivating the young will define the type of civilization that is being created. The very word religion probably means to tie back or to bind together. It means getting things moving in the same direction, growing in the same direction. And so cultures or civilizations emerge out of the cultivation that goes on in the mind and hearts in particular of the young, and that starts to shape what a society looks like. Today we are creating a, increasingly a culture of barbarians. That sounds insulting, but uh, a barbarian literally means rootless one. Rootless one. It only takes one generation to create a culture of barbarians who have lost contact with who they really are, their roots, their history, what it means to live in the society in which they live and dwell. A couple of years ago I watched with some dismay uh, in Toronto, the television, seeing youths burning part of London to the ground in England. You may remember this. Many of the children were as young as 11 and 12 years old. And when they were asked by police why they were burning their own uh, community to the ground, they couldn't give an answer, at least not one that was comprehensible to anybody who spoke English. 
Uh, not that these people didn't claim they could speak English. These were homegrown children of England, burning their own shops and homes to the ground. And uh, their main explanation was they just wanted to show that their parents and the police that they could do whatever they wanted. Now, that, those are just, that's just one very public tip, uh, mark of a culture in decline. Now, this passage tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's the creator of, of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. And everything is to be made subject to him. It's been created by him and for him. And in him, everything holds together. It all consists in terms of the person of Jesus Christ. As that vision of who Jesus is has slipped in the life of the church, we've lost our sense that Canada, for example, let's take our own cultural situation, Canada was considered the dominion of the Lord. You know, the motto of Canada is taken from Psalm 72, verse 8. Music to my ears. <laughs> and that, that Psalm 72, verse 8 reads, who can tell me? He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's Christ the Scripture is talking about. This was the vision of the Canadian founders. And as that has slipped, our culture has moved into crisis. Now, because in two hours, less than two hours now, a lot less, uh, we cannot do a full analysis for you tonight of all the different challenges facing the culture. Just log on to the EICC's website in the next couple of weeks. You'll see our new website up. You can get all kinds of resources to look at different areas. Uh, Scott and I this evening want to focus on one of those two primary markers of culture. I said that the two key things, if you want to discern the religion, uh, the nature of the religion defining any culture, all you have to do is look at its law and its education. And those two things will tell you pretty much what you need to know about the culture. This evening we're going to focus on education. Education, because culture and cultivation and the cultivation of the mind and the heart of the young is what creates and brings forth civilization. Now, John Milton, most of you will have heard of John Milton, I suspect. He wrote Paradise Lost, a bit later, Paradise Regained. He was a Puritan. He was in the cabinet of Oliver Cromwell in England. He said this, The end then of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents, by regaining to know God aright, and out of that knowledge to love Him, to imitate Him, to be like Him. That was uh, his, from his work on education. And this is significant because, uh, in many respects, the, this period in the history of the English-speaking peoples was a time in which Christian education proliferated. And Parliament freed itself from uh, the tyranny of an absolutist monarchy. And parliamentary democracy as we know it today uh, was born in this era. And so the idea of free, liberal education in which people were trained in righteousness actually gave birth to countries like Canada. That's why we can be here today. The groundwork that other people did in the past so that we could be free and know what it means to live in freedom, freedoms that our culture today is squandering. And he says that the end of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents so that we would know God aright and out of that knowledge to love Him, to imitate Him, to be like Him. It's the goal of learning, the goal of education. T.S. Eliot observed concerning education what becomes evident when you reflect on it. He says this, we derive our theory of education from our philosophy of life. The problem turns out, he says, to be a religious problem. We derive our theory of education from our philosophy of life. Uh, the Christian church historically understood that, so that when you look back through church history, we see until very recently, Christians saw education as the primary or one of the primary avenues through which 
we apply the reign of Christ, the, 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 the reign, the preeminence of this Christ of Colossians 1. That's not just a, a, a doctrine to memorize and be able to regurgitate like a sort of Christian egghead, of which there are many in our time, who think that actually just knowing doctrines is sufficient. God wants us to apply what's true about him to the world. And so the Lordship of Christ was historically applied to education and hence the birth of Christian civilization. With biblical faith actuating people and because of the centrality of Scripture, Christianity in particular led to a huge advancement in literacy, printing, founding of schools and universities throughout the Western world. It's very interesting. Many people do not realize that Harvard was a Puritan school and Cambridge was a Puritan school and Oxford was a Christian school. And all of these great universities were Christian institutions. The, the motto of Oxford today remains, the Lord is my light. It originally was the Lord is my light and my salvation. These institutions were created by the Christian church because we believed in the preeminence of Christ over all things. And we believed that God was central and basic to every aspect of life. Our Christian forebears saw all knowledge then as an integrated whole under God, where everything was to be studied and understood in light of the foundation of God's word. There was no division for them between the secular and the sacred, the spiritual and the natural. They didn't say, well, you know, law and education and government, that's all secular. And then what goes on in here, that's sacred, that's, that's Christian. And everything else is the world's task, and we just, that's secular. Because Colossians 1 doesn't tell us that Jesus rules over a sacred realm called the institutional church. It says that in him all things consist, and all things have been created through him and for him, whether visible or invisible, visible thrones, dominions, powers, authorities, everything. As one rule at the early Harvard College made plain, and I quote, this is right out of the Harvard rule book of the time, that every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That was at the foundation of Harvard. For Christian parents, then, we are privileged partakers in the covenant of grace, and that means we have a double responsibility and obligation. We're not just created by God. We've been brought into a redemptive covenant with Him through Jesus Christ. We have a double responsibility to educate our children in a God-glorifying and Christ-centered manner. Now, in my own upbringing, uh, my parents did the best that they knew how, and uh, they certainly in the home instructed me in the, in the faith. But I did not have anything approaching what we might call a Christian education. It was uh, humanistic to the core in the state schools of England 25, 30 years ago. Education then, if we take Colossians 1 seriously, and if we take the meaning of culture seriously, is an inescapably religious task. And it is education, this cultivation of the mind, that has been transforming steadily, rebuilding, reconstructing our social order. For example, let me uh, just bring this down to earth for a moment. Do you, any of you believe that a judge or somebody, some elite bureaucrat writing the curriculum for the school just wakes up one morning and decides that what we should be doing is queering our culture, as the politicians and the educators tell us today? If some of you don't even know what that means, you're looking at me blankly. And it means the... Uh, sexualization and homoeroticization of our culture. The redefinition of marriage, the family, 
gender, sexuality. That will be the primary emphasis of Scott's discussion uh, later this evening. Those people didn't just wake up and decide, oh, why don't we queer culture? Judges don't just decide to deny freedom of speech to Christians objecting to certain forms of behavior in the Supreme Court. They are educated. They grow up in the school. They're trained and they're taught to think in a particular kind of way. And the fruit of the cultivation of their minds comes out when they write curriculum, when they make rulings in the courts, when they define legislation. Because education then is an inescapably religious task, it grows out of our philosophy of life, which is always grounded in religious assumptions. And there, are, there has been widespread failure in the Western world to acknowledge or recognize that the content of a child's education is plainly religious and that our children are being instructed or indoctrinated in an anti-biblical set of assumptions, premises, and faith. And then we're shocked that by the time they reach 23, they've left the church and still haven't returned in their 30s. I was going to cite this statistic later, but it may as well be said now. Depending on which study you read, somewhere between 70 and 85% of our children have lost their faith by the age of 23, who grew up in Christian homes today. We have lost a quarter, one-fourth of a generation of Protestant Christians in the last 25 years. A quarter. The religious character and function of education has been repeatedly pointed out by non-evangelical thinkers and philosophers. You don't have to read Christian thinkers on this. This is not something that's like, well, there's a little secret Christian conspiracy theory about education and they're going to, you know, we're telling it. No, this is something that, in fact, probably the most important, significant Canadian political philosopher, George Grant, highlighted in terms of the relationship between religion and education, and that there is no escape from this. This is what George Grant says. He's a Canadian philosopher. The origin of the word religion, he says, of course, is shrouded in uncertainty, but the most likely account is that it means it arises from the Latin to bind together. It is in this sense that I intend to use it, that is, as that system of belief, whether true or false, which binds together the life of individuals and gives to those lives whatever consistency of purpose they may have. Such a use implies that I would describe liberal humanists or Marxists as religious people. Indeed, that I would say all persons, insofar as they are rational beings, are religious. Indeed, the present controversy is not concerned with whether religion should be taught in schools, but rather with what should be the content of the religion that is so taught. It is perfectly clear that in all North American state schools, religion is already taught in the form of what may be best called the religion of democracy. That the teaching about the virtues of democracy is religion and not political philosophy is clearly seen from the fact that the young people are expected to accept this on faith and cannot possibly at their age be able to prove the superiority of democracy to other forms of government if indeed this can be done. The fact that those liberals who most object to any teaching about the deity are generally most insistent that the virtues of democracy be taught should make us aware that what what is at issue is not religion in general, but the content of the religion to be taught. Now, that's the issue in education today. It's not whether education uh, should allow religion in it. It's simply... Which religion is to be inculcated? Which religion is going to be taught? What informs every aspect of the curriculum? One Reformed critic who was instrumental in defending the freedom of Christian education in the United States in the 70s and 80s says this. He agrees with George Grant. He says, education has always been a religious function of society and closely linked to its religion. When a state takes over the responsibilities for education from the church or from Christian parents, 
The state has not thereby disowned all religions, but simply disestablished Christianity in favor of its own statist religion, usually a form of humanism. Now, this was the very nature of my own education. Nobody can tell me otherwise, because I went through it, age 5 through 18. At the heart of the religious nature of education is the question of the nature of the human person. The doctrine of man is a faith postulate, and it shapes the character of society and thereby education generally. We condition children then in terms of a view of their nature and the role in life that idea of nature gives them. So the question is, what is their nature and what is the goal of their conditioning? What's the nature of a human being? And this is the very issue that we are today divided over as a culture. We, our children are being taught, and in the universities, that there are somewhere between 7 and 14 gender identities, that gender is a fluid plastic concept. We have no idea today even what a human being actually is, or when life begins, or what marriage is, or what family means. The, the things that we took for granted for centuries are today being turned on their head. Today, the state-sanctioned view in the public schools is that human beings are advanced animals. From the goo through the zoo to you, and along with pagans like Plato, we are political animals, we're told. So we're biologically animals, and we're political animals. And according to modern neo-pagan educational doctrine, we have evolved by chance from the void and can ascertain no ultimate meaning or purpose beyond that which we can determine and decide for ourselves. Meaning is not something that's pre-established by God. It's ephemeral. It's something that maybe is one thing today to you and will be another thing tomorrow to somebody else. You dare not claim that Christian culture or Christian education is superior to a Buddhist education or culture, or a pagan education or culture, or an Islamic education or culture. That is to be unicultural, to be uh, uh, politically incorrect, to be a racist, a, a phobe of some sort, to be suffering from a mental illness because you believe that Christ is preeminent. Education and the social, social order have today returned to, then, an essentially Greek starting point. So what I often tell people, especially when I'm on the radio, progressives are regressives. They think they're progressing to something as though they're leaving something barbaric behind in Christianity, but in fact they are regressing to a pagan vision of reality. They just don't have the sense to realize it. As a religious faith for these people, it is held that there is no triune and sovereign God over man. Men are not, people are not made in the image of God. There is no source of authority beyond our own mind. And our minds all participate in this cosmic evolutionary process of becoming into what we do not know what. Although there are some who say we are going to become post-human, which is what many a modern intellectual believes today, the transhuman. We're going to transcend our humanity, merge with our machines, download ourselves into a digital consciousness. Sounds like science fiction and Star Trek, but this is, this, there are conferences and organizations and intellectuals dedicated to the idea that cosmic evolution is going to bring us a transformation beyond what we are. That's why the idea of androgyny is dominating our culture. I'll leave Scott to talk about androgyny. He's writing notes so that he knows what he's supposed to be talking about now in the next session. <laughs> since, since man then does not need God, he thinks, to know the facts, to, ha to, to develop knowledge, true knowledge... 
Each man is thought to be able to independently interpret reality for himself. The problem you have there then is you have a great context, contest of wits. So imagine that all of us here have the right to approach reality and determine truth and reality for ourselves. Well, Ethel is going to come up with a different view than John, and Paul's going to have a different view than Sally, and Sally's going to have a different view than Peter, and so on and so forth, about meaning and reality and truth and so on and so forth. So what then? In the context, in the context of wits, you cannot have anarchy. I mean, if we were to supposed to be creating a, a, a miniature society, so it often helps to take things out of the macro where we can't really conceive of what we're talking about. We think of the state, this huge, great bureaucracy. Well, the state is only a differentiated public. That's us. People that we have elected to make decisions that represent our ideas. Okay, so let's say we represent a society, a body of people, trying to get at meaning and truth and reality, but without God. How do we structure our society? How do we structure the social order when we cannot agree on the very basic and foundational questions? Well, without a replacement source of authority, no unity could be accomplished. God has to be replaced with something. You couldn't possibly generate unity. And so the return has been to the pagan Greek vision of the philosophers, the philosopher kings, where the state becomes the basic and essential institution and the institution that governs education. The state becomes essentially the replacement God. Why do you think the state thinks today, the Canadian state believes it can redefine marriage? They can't redefine marriage. It doesn't matter what they say on paper. They haven't redefined anything. But they think that they have the right and ability to redefine marriage, family, sexuality. It's a remarkable thing. Well, they believe they are the, the state believes itself today. The pagan view is that the state is the basic institution, a saving institution, an educating institution. An education becomes the vehicle of state activism by which the political animal, that's the child, is molded to adopt the state's vision of the future. And this naturally leads to the notion that since the state is the locus of authority, guiding this process of becoming, remember, evolution in the child, this child being a product of nature, what it's really doing is saving you. It's conditioning you. In order to save people from themselves and their ignorance, the state and its educational apparatus become a redeeming order. And this is how it was in the pagan world. The the classroom is the new pulpit. The curriculum is the new Bible. The state educators, the new priesthood. And state education becomes the cure-all for sin, crime, emotional, mental health problems, social disintegration, economic disparity, in short, a means of social salvation. So that they say, well, what we should introduce now is all-day daycare for as young as possible. And keep them in the institutions for as long as possible. And tip out more ill-educated and illiterate people than we've done in decades. of Canadians are semi-illiterate today. Semi-illiterate. Our educational standards have not developed. In fact, they did a study recently in the UK. My dad left school at 15, 16 years old after a grammar school education. uh, He would have left in the early 60s. And uh, university graduates in their subjects, speciality subjects, find themselves unable to pass the leaving exams of 16-year-olds from the 50s and 60s. You take a look back and look at the entrance requirements for a university in the 19th century. Now, I'm not uh, suggesting that uh, all of us are ill-educated oafs. I certainly regret the educational experience that I had as I look back on it we don't believe that education is salvation Christians don't believe that 
But the average farmer was better informed than many a university student today in the 19th century. The problems then that the state claims to solve know no limits. It's no surprise to find that the tenth point of Karl Marx's communist manifesto was for free state schools. And this is true for all utopians. This has been the means by which society can be controlled and allow nature to reach its goal. Education being an inescapably religious endeavor. Now, education in Canada in the West for decades, since Egerton Ryerson, the chief superintendent of education in Ontario from 1844, described Christianity, he said, as the all-pervading principle of Canadian life. He wrote the first uh, curriculum. He was a Christian. He wrote the first curriculum for public schools in Ontario. He's a Methodist minister. Having begun firmly in Christian foundations where teachers were expected until the late 60s, according to Ontario's McKay Committee in 1969, to, quote, bring home to pupils as far as their capacity allows the fundamental truths of Christianity and their bearing on human life and thought. Right into the 60s. By the 80s, the Canadian court's guns were turned on what was left of Bible reading and prayer in public schools, and Christianity was banished. On December 6, 1990, the Ontario Ministry of Education issued a memorandum ordering all public schools to end any indoctrination in religious faith. Regulations governing education were changed accordingly, and the era of Christianity in Ontario's public schools was over. Of course, they didn't mean stop indoctrinating in religious faith. They meant stop teaching about Christianity in the schools. Of course, the meaning of all of this was a repudiation of Christianity in favor of humanism and the religion of democracy. And by the religion of democracy, we mean, really, the idea that vox populi, vox dei, meaning the voice of the people is the voice of God. Truth is not defined and meaning is not defined by God, it's defined by man. To transform the future, the minds of the young have to be regained and brought into captivity to Christ then. If we believe what Colossians 1 says about Christ and his preeminence, the key challenge facing our culture today, facing Christians today, in fact, I would say, that it's difficult to find anything that would rank as high in importance is the recovery of the cultivation of the Christian mind. Because there is no way route back to a restoration. And we're not talking about idealizing a past to say, well, that was ideal. There were faults with our past. Of course there were. God wants us to move into his ordained future in terms of the person of Jesus Christ. And the only way to do that is for every area of life, things visible and invisible, to be brought into subjection to Christ. Critically, the mind and heart of the young. All of this means that neutrality in education is a myth. It's a myth. It's a useful myth to some people because it's allowed Christians to be lulled into a false sense of security about the education of children. But it's a byproduct of pagan humanistic thought because humanistic thought presupposes, that is, believes in a cosmos of self-generated, autonomous, meaningless facts. That's meaningless bits of reality coming out of the void. Why are they meaningless? Well, in the non-believer's worldview, everything from atoms to antelopes isn't created by God. There's no design plan. There's no purpose or teleology, as we say. There's no creator. There's no predestinating God who is distinct from creation. There's no essence that precedes existence. There is nothing that precedes history. In fact, on a non-Christian worldview, you can't have history, really, but that's another subject. There is no pre-established relationship between 
the properties or the facts of the universe because there's no God. You don't discover meaning in such a universe. You invent it because there is none. Reality is therefore impervious to interpretation. With respect to humanity, the human person has no divine essence that precedes their experience. They have no God-given personhood. Facts are uncreated, undirected, ultimately unrelated. All facts are consequently for the humanistic mind neutral. Neutral, which means they're neither one thing nor another. The term neutral comes from the Latin neuter, neither one thing nor another. A neutered man is called a eunuch. Because in the fullest sense of that term, he's no longer fully male, but he's not female. That's where the idea comes from. Now, it's come to mean in our time an unbiased position or an unwillingness to take sides. But the idea, the very concept of a neutral education logically entails a set of beliefs about reality that I've just explained to you. Those are religious assumptions about the world, that there's no God. There's no design plan. There's no predestined order. There's no meaning and relationship between the facts. Therefore, the facts could be this. They could be that. They're neither one thing nor another. They're neutral. So you make up your own values. You have your own meaning. What's true for you isn't true for me. Hence, it filters all the way down to the popular terminology of people texting each other. What's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. I do it my way. You do it your way. You go to church. That's great. Jesus works for you. I go to the golf course. You know, I feng shui my apartment. It's kind of all the same, isn't it? We're finding our religious meaning. This is just inventing a meaning for yourself out of the void. That's the basis of progressivist education. is isn't progressing to anything from a particular point. That's why you look at it and you say, Christians say, can it, can it get any worse than this? Can, can, it, can they really say anything more absurd than this? Yes. Yes, they absolutely can. There is no logical stopping point in this worldview of neutrality. For the Christian, reality can't be neither one thing nor another if it's created and governed by God. If the Christ of Colossians 1 is real, which he is, Reality isn't neither one thing. It's not neutral. It's God's creation. It's his work. Moves in terms of his purpose. Is governed by him. Will lead to, finally, at the end of all things, the total preeminence of Christ in everything. That's the Christian worldview. We're called to get on board with what God's doing. We're just to participate in what he is doing in history. Now, we either work against that purpose or we work for that purpose. An ostensibly neutral or unbiased education, then, is an illusion at every level. The purpose of education, the content of education, none of it can be neutral because education cannot be to no purpose. When your children and my children are in a classroom, there isn't no end in view. A curriculum, which, which I think means literally to run, like chariot, race, is going somewhere. Where is it going? What's it saying about the human person, about reality? You see, the modern idea of the progressives from people like Horace Mann, John Dewey, is liberation, freedom. My parents' generation called it the revolution. Peace, love, and lentil soup. Let's lie under this bus and save the trees and grow our hair really long and so on. Okay? The sexual revolution. The student revolution. We're going to change everything. We're going to turn everything on its head. Well, they did that all right. Look at all the broken homes and the broken lives and the broken marriages and all the social consequences of the revolution. Because for them, liberation from the past meant liberation from God, from revealed truth, from authority. Freedom didn't mean if the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Freedom meant freedom from Jesus Christ, 
to my own will and purpose, to my autonomy, which means self-law, which was the temptation of our first parents. What was the temptation to our first parents? You shall be as gods, knowing, or actually in the force of the original language there, determining, deciding, choosing for yourself what's good and evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood. It's the will to godhood. And so the locus of free expression today becomes really the state. Liberty, you see, is not self-explanatory. I mean, what does liberty mean? Free to be what? Free to do what? Free to become what? With the Christian consensus in the West now gone, if the goal of education is liberty, then liberty has to be defined. And that liberty is either under God and His Word and His law, or it's really the modern concept of the freedom of, this, of necessity, which is nature is going somewhere. We know not where. Except that it can be discerned by the elite. They can discern where nature is going for your children. That is the abolition of the family, the abolition of male and female binary distinctions into a great oneness of all things. They say they discern that. And that, they say, is the freedom of necessity. It's going there. It can't be avoided. This is what's going to happen in our world. And this freedom of necessity, which allegedly expresses the freedom of nature, is expressed in the plan of the elite today, especially through the education system. But freedom cannot be absolute anarchy, can it? Can't mean that. Because if you and I are free to do whatever we want, if you're free to steal, I'm not free to possess my goods in peace, am I? Your freedom impinges on my freedom and vice versa. Freedom must be circumscribed, as it always has been in the history of the Christian worldview, by God's law. True freedom is only in terms of Christ and His Word. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus says, he who sins is a slave to sin. He's not free. He thinks he's free, but he makes himself a slave. A slave to sin and all its results. The massive emphasis then on education today has been really about a bureaucracy enforcing policy to protect itself, to create its own vision of freedom. In the belief that the human mind is a neutral consciousness or apparatus to be written on rather than an aspect of a fallen creation in rebellion against God. And the idea of this blank slated uh, child whose mind can be just written on and they can be conditioned into anything carries with it the idea that history can really be abolished and revolution can change everything. And we mold the child then in terms of this new dream that is without God. And this really was part of the original vision of a state education even in Canada. Many of the educators were thinking in terms of education as redemptive in its character. It wasn't about civilizing a person and tr just training them, giving them the tools of knowledge and critical thinking so that they could be free think freely, it became quickly about the transformation and conditioning of the child to model them in terms of useful tools for the state. I've got a quote here from Archibald McMillan, uh, McCullum, very influential teacher in Ontario in the late 19th century. He says this, society has suffered so cruelly from ignorance that its riddance is a matter of necessity. And by the universal diffusion of knowledge, Alone can ignorance and crime be banished from our midst. As though you can abolish crime by giving somebody an education. You don't abolish sin by teaching people the roots of verbs. Grammar wasn't included in my education. We didn't believe in it. And by the universe, and in, in, in no other way, he says, can the best interests of society be conserved and improved than by this one remedy, the compulsory enforcement of this great boon. The right of every Canadian child to receive that education that will make him a good, loyal subject prepared to serve his country in the various social functions which he may be called on to fill in his life. 
Nothing about Christ. Nothing about the parent. But creating. Today, what the state increasingly wants is useful idiots who will go along with the status quo. Not think too much, because if they think too much, well, we've got mental illnesses. If you think, you're mentally ill. This is what we're being told now. I've been accused of mental illness so many times now I've lost count. God's purpose and the gospel are here are not primary. So education will either be in terms of God and his purpose, or it will not. And make no mistake, it is a battle for the mind and a battle for the future. The field of education is a battle for the mind and soul of a culture, and it is thereby a battle for the future, the shape of civilization. Those who govern the minds of the young govern the course of the future because they are the culture shapers. They are the ones who are cultivating the minds and hearts of young people in terms of a state of being and an idea of life that will shape the kind of world that my children, and I've got an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 6-year-old right now, the kind of world that they will grow up in that their children will grow up in is being defined right now, even amongst us. The kind of culture are we cultivating a culture of Christ in terms of his word, the gospel, or something radically different? That is the cultural crisis facing our time, perhaps best expressed in this field of education. The challenge facing us is to bring every single area of life and thought under the lordship and preeminence of Jesus Christ so that tomorrow will be God's tomorrow, be God's future. As we align ourselves in obedience to his purpose, we either fight it, God and his purpose, or we run with it in every aspect of our lives. And only one of those courses leads to victory. This is the victory that overcomes the world, the Apostle John says, even our faith. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.